Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series, I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers, sportsmen and women, politicians, businessmen and women, and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. Today, I'm talking to one man who recently stunned us all. After graduating with a degree in communications, my guest kicked off his career in journalism with a five-year stint at the Times of Malta. He then took a commercial turn and became PR manager and brand journalist from Brandwagon. After leaving Brandwagon, my guest enjoyed a while as a PR consultant before launching into probably his most notable contribution to Malta Media by founding Love in Malta. After five years of changing the face of news reporting on the Maltese islands, Chris Perigin shocked the nation by announcing that he was leaving Love in Malta behind and potentially hanging up his career as a journalist and going to the Nationalist Party as a strategist. Chris, oh my, where do we start? First of all, a massive, massive welcome. Thank you, Trudy, and thank you very much for, for having me. And sorry, it's been a while. You did tell me at the, originally at the time of booking you to come on the show that something big was coming. And I remember jokingly thinking to myself, is he going into politics? So, of course, when you made this announcement, I, I really wish I'd gone to the bookies. <laughs> but Chris, I mean, how amazing. Let's kick off with that most recent news first. What were the events that led you to decide to sell up at Love in Malta and effectively jack in your career as a journalist and head to the current trailing party in politics. Why PN? Why, why this decision? I think it's related to the way Malta was progressing for the past few years, right? Basically, I felt that we're in a situation where we're either going to make the change we need to make in the country or we're uh, heading down a, a very dark path. I think we've been heading down a very dark path for a while. I think that it's just gotten worse with things like the grey listing. I, I think we're just in a situation where we're at a crossroads. We're either going to head towards this uh, situation where we've got a, almost a two-thirds majority for the for the Labour Party, despite everything that's happened in the past, you know, ten years, uh, or we're going to regroup and and create a, a, a different path for Malta, one that really takes into consideration the the common good and the future of Malta and its reputation and the climate and environment and all these things that we've been sort of angry about for a while, but we haven't yet channeled through a political party. And, and what I realize that you have to channel it through a political party, you know, it's not enough to just be angry or to, to share your discontent on, on Facebook or to attend protests or, or to be an activist or a journalist even. Unless we are building a proper opposition that could rival the government, then all our efforts are in vain. And, and that's what I realized. And once I realized it, I couldn't really unrealize it. You know, once I realized it, I said, I've, I, can't, I, I can't just say this as a journalist. I have to make the step myself. You know, I have to kind of walk the, walk the talk. And I, I was comfortable with, with that because one, I, I believe in it uh, in a big way. You know, I, most of my best friends in the past 15 years have left Malta. And there was a time when they were leaving Malta for a 
opportunity and for you know to make the the best out of this EU membership and other things and they always plan to come and raise their children in Malta but now they say you know we're not going to head back to Malta if anything a lot more people are saying let's let's leave Malta and I'm one of the few people among my my friends who has never <laughs> tried to live abroad or, or never wanted to live abroad. I've made Malta my home in a big way and I've really dedicated to the current affairs landscape in Malta as a journalist for well over a decade now. And I guess I, I came to a point where I was starting to question, you know, should I leave as well? And instead of leaving, I said, let's go all in on this political uh, journey and see see if I could make a difference. Well, this is really interesting because you mentioned about people leaving the island. I myself have made Malta my home as well. I've been here 17 years and I chose to come to this country and we've had an incredibly successful time in Malta. We've seen so much change in the last 17 years. But let me just go back to something that you stated in an interview. You said it's time to stop punishing PN and start building Malta's future. If you want to change this country and form part of Malta's next government, Get in touch and let's start writing the new chapter together. The door is wide open and there is hope in the air. We cannot afford to miss this opportunity. And that kind of summarises what you've just said and why you decided to make that change. But I just want to touch on that because this is a very optimistic voice. But right at this moment, and you've said it yourself, we still see that the current government are leading by 50,000 votes in a recent poll with the Times of Malta. And this is, despite greylisting, being held accountable for the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia, countless reports of bribery, bank heist, corruption, and a murder trial allegedly linking to individuals at the highest level of government. How is this even possible? Well... I, I think it's the way politics has developed over the last 10 years, right? So something sort of happened with the Nationalist Party. I think it happened sort of after EU membership. So, so there was this very big effort to unite the country and do something unimaginable, which was to sort of get Malta into the EU as a strong, you know, member of the European Union. And that required a huge transformation, a transformation of our economy, a transformation of the kind of jobs that we do, our industry, getting ready for competition at an EU level, both the positive sides and the negative sides of that. And it was also a very painful journey, one that involved having to campaign very strongly against the Labour Party's scaremongering over EU members membership and, and, and convincing the public to vote for a referendum, which still needed an election to confirm it after the referendum. So that's the kind of history of it. But I think from that moment on, the Nationalist Party had come to a point where it didn't have that same clarity of vision that people were used to it having. And that affects even the internal culture, you know, because if you don't have a very, very clear vision, then it's easy to get off track. And I think that's what happened to PN in the 2008 election, which it, which it barely won. It won by a whisker. 
and then it had five years or four and a half years of, of misery in a sense because it had a one-seat majority and fractional sort of gap in the in the polls and that meant that any decision it took it could annoy enough people to to destabilize the government and so I think it stopped taking decisions or, or it tried to be as 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 good as possible but that was really really difficult eventually it just seemed like it, it wasn't taking decisions and it was slowing down everything and that sort of coincided with labor developing this massive majority. I think what else happened when when Labour became in opposition, the party that was certainly going to win, what you had is a number of businesses who perhaps used to support the Nationalist Party for, for decades, wanting to sort of overcompensate with the Labour Party, you know, and I think what used to be sort of a call for donations became a bit of a bidding war for projects, for this very pro-business government that was promising to sell off a number of assets of the country and enter these privatization agreements, etc. And I, what developed there then is this really strong Labour machine, which then once it got into government, included all the incumbency versus a nationalist party that had had been, you know, very tired and lost after many, many years in government and, and was still regrouping. And then we had, I think, eight years of trauma, right? Because just before the Nationalist Party could even start to form its ideas as an opposition, within two years, you know, we heard of Panama Papers. And that automatically made the Labour government an illegitimate one. They got elected and immediately, within days, set up these secret offshore structures, meant that the national, from the Nationalist Party's perspective, that was an illegitimate government. And so it wasn't so much about what is the great next vision for Malta. It became, how do we get these crooks out? And then you had... 2017 election where which was called a year earlier because of this you know partly and the crooks didn't get out eh? they they secured their their majority probably because at least my interpretation is that a lot of the idealistic people who voted for labor in 2013 hoping for meritocracy hoping for a for a change in the country like myself by the way i voted labor in 2013 i think in 17 many of us voted PN, but there were a lot of people who hadn't yet trusted Labour on the economy that in 2017 said, you know what, we'd rather not destabilize the economy at the moment, you know, we're going to stick to Labour. Little did they know that the economy would also get destabilized because of that decision, right? But then there was more trauma, right? Then there was PN losing its, its recently elected leader, Simon Buzutil. Another leader getting elected, Adrian Delia, who seemed to have the qualities that Simon Buzutil didn't have because he seemed a bit tougher in that sense. And he also seemed to want to have his own agenda that goes beyond the corruption narrative, beyond Daphne, etc. And then Daphne gets killed. And I think at that moment, there was this sort of realization that everything PN had said about the current government sort of was true. Uh, everything Daphne had said was was true. I think, immortalized in her last words. There are crooks everywhere now and the situation is desperate. I think at that point, the career of Adrian Delia became really contentious because he had been elected on the premise of let's move on from this, whereas Daphne's assassination confirmed the illegitimacy 
of the Labour government. And again, you had this cycle, you know, so then the parliamentary group eventually sort of chose to, to change Adrian Delia and, and, and not have him as leader. Another leadership election, uh, Bernard Gret gets uh, elected. But that means nine months of this, uh, I, again, I, I say trauma for the Nationalist Party because to go through four different leaders, to have a country that, that used to be good enough to enter the EU and is now, you know, grey listed by the FA. I mean, just imagine if Malta wanted to get into the Eurozone or to the EU today, as in what we would be, how we would be laughed out of a room. But that was very traumatic for Pierre, and especially, I think the 2017 election was was a very bitter pill to swallow. And again, nine years later, and, and, and still the, the purpose or the vision of the PN, I think, hasn't yet had the time to be articulated and formed properly because there's been all of this internal reckoning and, and reckoning with the country. And it's, it still seems to be that we need to get rid of this, this government. Homan Grek said, something that you just mentioned back there. You mentioned about business, about the Labour government coming in and running the country as a business and having a lot of business ties and a lot of businesses wanting to get involved with the Labour government because of the way that it was running the business. And, of course, a lot of people got rich off the back of that. We're going to come to that in a second, but before we get there, you just mentioned leadership. So I'm going to have to ask you this question. You recently said of the current PN leader... Bernard Grech, who you just said. Bernard Grech is the right leader for the moment. He's the right leader for the time. That is very important in leadership, which obviously leads me on to the question, your inference in that statement and what we've just been discussing about leadership changing over and over again, is that he is right for now, but is he right for the future? But is there a strategy for PN leadership? We talked about that. Is, is he right for now, but not right to take the party forward? No, I think what I mean over there is that very often we have this preconceived idea of what a leader should be, right? And and I was among the many people who look at the Nationalist Party and say, oh, the Nationalist Party really needs something very different. You know, it needs a woman, it needs a young person, it needs a whatever it needs, you know, it needs something radically different. Needs to, And that's fair enough, you know, I think, I think uh, you could say that. But I think w- when it comes to leadership, you need to look at the time, right? And what the Nationalist Party desperately needs right now is someone who can bridge all of these aspects and these, in a sense, broken pieces of the Nationalist Party party, this trauma we're talking about. And I think Bernard Grech has some tremendous qualities at being someone who can really unite people, right? Because he's not someone who is particularly, for example, ideologically driven. He's not extremely right or extremely left or extremely conservative or extremely liberal, you know. He really understands the different perspectives. And I think his his background as a as a mediator more than a lawyer. I think I think it's important to to think about that. Like he's a mediator, so his experience is bringing two parties who are really antagonistic towards each other and trying to find the common ground and seeing what we can agree on. And 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 you know it's important to agree because otherwise we're both going to be in a mess. So he's not egocentric. His agenda is to bring unity to the party. Absolutely. Because the party, from what you're saying, is broken right and, now. And in my experience now, it's been about a month since I've been there. One thing that I can 
clearly see is that this is what needs to happen. It's not so much about, like the, the party is too full of people with very, very clear ideas of their own and lots of things to say and lots of ideas to push. And, you know, there's so much energy from so many people pieces of the Nationalist Party, that expecting a leader to come in and take the reins really, really in their own direction, no matter what, like, that's not going to happen within the Nationalist Party. That's the truth. You know, the Nationalist Party is even the community of of, of nationalists, the the wider community of people who are nationalists. And I think this goes back to the sort of vote difference that we're talking about, right? There's 50,000 people who really don't want to vote for Labour. But their standards are high and they want to be convinced by the Nationalist Party. They're not giving that up easily. They want to see the Nationalist Party rise to the occasion. They want to see the Nationalist Party show that it's different to Labour. They want to know that the Nationalist Party has a vision that they can rally behind. That's also reflected internally inside the party. The the standards are very high. There's a lot of internal criticism. There's a lot of openness with, with people's ideas. And therefore, what you really need is someone who can really bring together all of these different opinions and ideas and strategies and and find a way to piece that into a common ground everyone can rally behind. And it's not easy. It's really not easy because of what these past 10 years have been like, you know, for the Nationalist Party. So that's what you meant when you said that Bernard was the right leader for this time. Absolutely. And that's what needs to be done. Yeah. And I think it's also what the country needs. So it's also like, I think he's the right prime minister for this time, because again, there was a lot of trauma within the PN, but there was also that trauma for Malta. It's really difficult, and I say this personally as well, like when you had so much faith in a politician like Joseph Muscat, for example, to go from that to what we know today really makes you lose faith in all politicians. And in fact, my own personal journey was more like, if there's one person I can trust, it's myself. So I'm going to go in there and see what I can do. Because it's very hard to have faith in other people, you know, as in we can trust ourselves, but it's it's harder to trust anyone else when you experience what we've experienced over the last 10 years. And because of this breach in trust that the, the public has had with its political class, I think Bernard is the right person for time because he's not really a politician, right? He's one of us. He's someone else like me who gave everything else up to try and help when time was was required of him. And within a party, you're trailing, as you said, you know, you're, you're not um, joining a bandwagon just before it's hugely successful. You're, you're joining something at its lowest, in a sense. But yes, he's someone who, who, who did that. Um, he's not your typical politician. And I think he can bridge this divide that, that Malta and the PN, but that Malta has, has experienced over the last 10 years and find a way to map out our aspirations. Because again, today, it's not this sort of cult around person and, and their very, very specific ideas of, of how to get elected. It's about empowering citizens and and communities and NGOs and and experts and academics to realize their their dreams for Malta. And we all have specific ideas about what needs to be done. What's important is that your ideas have a channel that they could reach a politician who has a genuine interest in 
making Malta better and not a genuine interest in piling money outside of Panama, inside but Panama. That's you know, you that's, that's the difference. Exactly. And you hit it right on the nail, right on the head. Because I think having talked to so many people during this podcast, there is a lot of people who are feeling tired, lethargic, run down, not just because of what's been happening in the media with Daphne, what's been happening in the media with the grey listing, but also because, of course, let's face it, we've also been in a pandemic as well, but are tired and are desperate to see good news. We've been bombarded. You know this because you are loving Malta. You know we've been bombarded with bad news over and over and over again. We've had months where every week there was another revelation of something awful that's happened. Before we move on, because we're going to talk about your career as a journalist as well and the founder of Love in Malta, regarding your new role, are you really that hopeful for your vision? Your vision has cost you your career, what you founded. You've decided not to leave the island. You've decided that you are going to be part of this change. How much blood, sweat and tears is it going to take to get there? Look, the good news is that I'm much less frustrated than I was before I joined, right? So, of course, there are things within the Nationalist Party that once you're there, you realize, you know, how are we still doing things in this way? You know, this is com like this needs to change. This needs to change the culture. There's so much to change and there's so much to, to process, you know, that it's easy to feel that the outlook is bleak. But in reality, when you know that you're... Uh, able to change something when you know you're able to contribute and and you're and you're there then whatever upsets you about the party you you're it's upsetting you about yourself you know your inability to change it and that's a very engaging process i'll be honest like i think it's the most challenging thing i've ever tried to do that also makes it the most engaging and fun thing that i've ever done you know, it's it's a completely different motivation from you know, building your own startup or making your own money or buying a house, you know, it's, it's, we're either going to make this country livable, you know, for me first and foremost, to be able to enjoy living here, or we're, we're gonna give up. And I'm not about to give up. I am, I'm sure we can get it done. That's amazing to hear. Absolutely amazing to hear. Okay, we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But in the meantime, I want to talk about you, Chris, as the man in the media. Uh, you started off your career at Times of Malta as a very revered journalist, I have to say, with a very serious tone. And I remember thinking when I first came to Malta, there is no tabloid news. I came from the UK and the US, where you have all of these tabloid magazines and newspapers. And then Love in Malta was born and filled a vacant slot of delivering news and stories and entertainment in a much more digestible tone of voice that everyone could understand. Did you ever doubt it would work? How did this happen? So I think I had spent a number of years questioning, can news be done differently? Um, specifically, can it be done online? I, at the times, between 2008 and 2013, which is when I was there, that coincided with Facebook and with, you know, mobiles and iPhones and, and things like that. So I lived that experience of having your story published on the front page, but no one actually 
texting you about it until it's shared on Facebook. And that made me think, okay, this is, uh, you know, maybe the front page isn't actually that important. What's important is what's on Facebook, what's on, on online. Um, but in, internally, the organization believed you can't make money online. So there was this strange conflict where if I knew that a story should go online, but they wanted to save it for the paper the next day or some, some things like that, you know, it became this, I was like fighting with the organization to get certain things published, etc. And I'd actually proposed this to the Times. <laughs> I told them like, listen, I'd really like to set up like a different website, it could exist under the Times brand. And maybe we'll create a different special brand for it. It would be just online first and, and really good on Facebook and targeting young people because they're obviously the ones who are more online, etc. Anyway, that never materialized realized but after i left and i did I, I did some time in pr i realized that this demand also existed in the commercial world so people didn't really want prs in the newspaper they wanted things that would work digitally because they were also seeing this change towards digital so eventually i just put these two things together you know i said listen there's clearly a demand from the commercial sector to do things differently uh, and to get their products and services written about in a more editorial way, but online. Um, and there was also the demand, I think, from readers because they were, you know, refreshing their feeds, constantly looking for information and, and no one was really giving that enough to them. Uh, so I happened to stumble upon a brand called Love in Dublin that looked exactly like what I wanted for Malta. So I negotiated with them to start in Malta and yeah, the rest is history. Well, you say it's history, but I mean, I can remember when Love in Malta launched and literally within three months, I said to myself, this isn't going anywhere. This is here to stay. And this is a different kind of reporting because it's not just taking news online. It's using a different language. It's using a different tone of voice. It's reaching out to a different audience. Were you ever surprised at that phenomenal instant success? Yeah, I think it was, I think within three weeks were a household name. Was I surprised? I guess I was surprised. I also remember very clearly believing in this in a huge way and knowing that it's going to be successful, knowing that I think what was fun about Love and Malta is that I really felt secure in my knowledge of the field because I had done some time working at Brandwagon with brands and I had done an, a considerable amount of time working with the Times who would eventually be the competitor, so to speak. I felt like I really knew the sector very well and I knew what to do. Uh, and once we did it, it worked. That didn't surprise me. I guess what I guess what surprised me was the way we were able to then grow so fast into very credible news brand that that, that had a huge impact on the country. And again, what happened to the Nationalist Party also happened to Lovin, right? So, so in, in the sense that at Lovin, the whole point was to publish news and content that was a bit lighter than the news, you know, than the Times, more today, independent. Like the, the idea was 80% light content and then 20% content that would really leave an impact because it's different to what you expect from Lovin. But then... 
again, you know, Malta just went through this very, very strange turn of events, which made it really difficult to put 80% light content out there. With the corruption, with the the murder of the car bombs, it, like it, it, it came to a point where what we set up to sort of promote Malta and give this very different lighter color of news and tabloid journalism and whatever to, to Malta, the events, changed that a little bit. We suddenly were kind of forced to become this quite hard news platform. We tried to retain as much of the the lightness as possible, you know, and and certainly managed to do so better than our competitors. But yeah, there there was that reality as well, you know, because we launched in 2016. So there must have been days where you couldn't put the story about the lady in Leah who lost her cat next to the death of a journalist. I want to ask you about that lighter content. Do you think, as a serious journalist, which is what you were, what you trained to be, did you ever think that you were dumbing down news? Did you ever think that you were making it just too digestible? You, you came from a very serious journalism background. Did you ever think to yourself, wow, you know, that missing cat in Leah, do, does that really, is it really worthy of a front page headline? No, I've always seen that differently. Even celebrity news, I'll go into that. I, I've always seen, like, for my starting point is people have much more time for content today than they ever have. You know how we say, oh, we don't have any more time. It's a, but the truth is we wake up in the morning, we go on our phones, we're refreshing for content, right? Uh, by the time... We're, we're in bed again to sleep, we're still doing that. Every almost minute of the day when we're not super engaged with our work, we're doing that. So to me, that means there's, there's more opportunity and demand for content than there used to be where we may have dedicated, you know, half an hour of TV watching to it or, or the, the confines of a newspaper pages. So there, there's a higher demand for content. And that allows you to be more experimental with content. Also, I think there's a need for authenticity and connection with readers today. So so just purely hard news is just not relatable enough to most people. So the idea was, let's create content that is relatable with people, that people can say, oh, these guys really get me. You know? So the listicles in the beginning were intended to do that, right? To to show with very specific examples and details that if you were thinking this about Malta, someone else was thinking it. And that just makes you smile. And even the light content, like celebrities, for example, I've always believed that uh, celebrities are there to help us explore aspects of our lives vicariously through other people. And Malta's celebrities, sadly, were only politicians for so long. So it's like, they're, like and, and they're obviously very straight and narrow, well, they're <laughs> very uh, particular people. You know, they don't explore the issues of mental health or difficult pregnancies or breakups or the, these things aren't explored very well through politicians, but they're explored very well through celebrities. But um, Love & Malta created the celebrity culture because again, yeah, because I remember when I came here, there were no celebrities. Yeah. The only person there was was Ira Losco. 
That was it. Yeah. The only person that you really looked at and went, there's a celebrity. And Love in Malta created that culture. Yeah, it, it, I think it created, to be fair, I think it, sort of two things were happening at the same time, right? Influencer culture was was starting to, to grow as well, but we really helped prop it up. I know a lot of people disagree with this or didn't like it or complained or liked to, to sort of bitch about it, but the reality is having these voices in our society that changes sort of the discourse and and sometimes we need that to be changed you know it's it's important for us to understand for example what it's like to really struggle to get pregnant and having a top influencer sort of documenting that journey and and sharing it closely that's that's helpful to people and it's the same things you know with all of these aspects of life that that we all don't really like talking about ourselves and it's convenient for us to have these celebrities um, it's convenient and useful to us to have these celebrities talk about these things and 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 we can laugh and criticize or say they're exposing too much or whatever, but I, I really don't see it that way. I think it's an important aspect of, of society and of culture. And I'm really glad that within five years at Love and Malta, we created this celebrity culture, which I think is not going anywhere. Even the fact that so many other platforms have uh, mushroomed uh, of the Love and Malta all seeing the same thing that before we were the only ones to see. That was useful. But you see, when you talk about Love in Malta, you have a big smile on your face. You know that Chris Perrigin created and has provided a legacy that has changed the Maltese landscape as far as media is concerned. That is massive. That's enormous. I recently heard it, it said that once an individual leaves journalism and goes into politics there's no way that you could go back are you happy with that call do you think that you will ever regret the decision that you have just made no i think as in i could regret being unsuccessful at, at what i do but i i don't regret the idea of, of of moving on from from journalism first of all the way i see it is that yeah it, it's it's very difficult for me to be perceived today as an independent journalist right that's because i now have a very clear purpose which before i didn't really have you know i think before i was sort of searching there was i was searching for my own beliefs and understanding of 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 multi-society and politics etc I grew up in a semi sort of nationalist family that, um, but I was really empowered to think critically. So uh, I spent the last 15 years of my life hating the nationalist party, you know, <laughs> and thinking of why it's wrong and this and that. But now that that's really clear in my mind that, that this is where the solution lies and I need to be a part of it just as much as everyone else does, you know, that, that we really need to regroup and unite together to take the country into the direction it needs to go into for the next, you know, 10, 20 years. I feel much lighter in that sense. This is a, a long-term project, a, a really difficult project, and it's it's so engaging in its, in its level of difficulty that I, I don't look back, and I, I haven't looked back, and I don't see myself looking back uh, until I'm either very successful or very unsuccessful, I guess. We'll see. <laughs> Well, it's just amazing listening to you say that you've hated the Nationalist Party for the last 15 years, but it does sound like you have found your calling. 
Yeah, I, I feel that way. It occurred to me that uh, through your journey joining the, the Nationalist Party, you must be bumping into a couple of people from time to time who've written less than complimentary articles about. How does that go down? I have, and, and it's actually more, <laughs> it's more pleasant than you can imagine because, again, once you're, once you're sort of on the same side and you have a shared purpose, this is the beauty of shared purpose. You know, I, I, I see it now more clearly than I saw it in business, but shared purpose changes everything because it means that uh, you put aside your differences, you know, you forgive each other if there's something to forgive and you try and work together to to achieve uh, something no, no good. No grudges you know? at all? No one's ever been a bit grumpy with you? Not yet. I mean, I don't know if they will be, uh, but no, I, I, I honestly was was welcomed in a in a really big way, uh, and that's it's, it's a really nice feeling. It's it's not. I, I expected it to be to be harder in that sense. You know, maybe it's going to be harder later. I don't know, but so far so good. It hasn't been. Listen, Chris, I'm I'm really thrilled that this is a higher calling that you have risen to, and that you have done this because you want to change. Thank you so much for being here on the interview with me. It has been an absolute pleasure, a privilege, and I am wishing you every single success. Thank you so much for the interview. 